thank you, Jesus. Grace is the subject of the morning. And this subject is so big, there is no way we could fully discuss it in its entirety on a Sunday morning, in a Sunday morning service. There's no way. Because this whole book is all about grace. The gospel message is all about grace. The cross is all about grace. In order for us to really do it justice, we'd have to go from front to back and study this whole thing to get grace. But that's the subject, and we will try to discuss it as big as it is this morning as best we can. Billy Graham said, Tears shed for self are tears of weakness, but tears shed for others are a sign of strength. It's how we view others. Billy Graham also said, A real Christian is a person who can give his pet parrot to the town gossip. (laughs) He said a lot of pretty cool things. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's by grace we're saved through faith. And we don't have time to put the chart up there to show you how that works, but it is by grace through faith. I would like to look at a few passages, maybe more than normal this morning. One of which is from Luke 6. I had a man tell me one time, in fact, he was a preacher, and he told me that, um, that as a Christian, we're supposed to get everybody to like us, then we can be more effective. And I shared with him, well, Jesus said, Let, uh, beware when all men speak well of you, and he said, the Bible doesn't say that. So then I quoted it, and this is it, woe to you, Luke six twenty six, when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets." You're not going to, if you live for Jesus, everybody is not going to speak well of you. Verse 27, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. That's hard. There's more, a little bit further down in verse 37 and following, judge not and you will not be judged, condemn not and you will not be condemned, forgive and you will be forgiven, give and it will be given to you, good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. <clears throat> we love to read that passage and talk about the blessings of God. We want the blessings of God and we want it to be spilling over, but we don't pay attention often to what this is talking about, how you judge others. How gracious you are with others, that's how it will be with you. Do you want God's grace? Sometimes we say it, but we don't act like it. We want His grace, but we're not gracious with others. It doesn't work that way. A little further in verse 43 and following, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Hmm. And the next verse, and following, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Wow. That's the way he sees it. 
You're supposed to do what he says. Don't, don't call him Lord if you're not going to make him Lord. Don't say Lord, Lord, if you're not going to live for him. Verse 47, he continues, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. Now, here's that parable. We often miss the whole point of it. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when the floods arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears the words and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. We oftentimes will say, you see, you build your house on the rock, which is Jesus, and then you've got the solid foundation. Well, that's partly true, but Jesus, he says, you build your house on the foundation. It's not just building on Jesus, it's building on living for Jesus. Don't just listen to his words like we do in church. Do what it says. If you do what it says, you've built your house on a solid foundation. If you just listen and don't do what he says, you will not stand. That's build your house on a rock. That's the teaching of build your house on a rock. Building your house on sandy land is not doing what Jesus said. Have you heard of Brennan Manning? I'll tell you about him if you haven't. He said this, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. Now, Brendan Manning was never a preacher of a large church. Brendan Manning, his last book, you can see it up here. It's all about all is grace is what it, his name of his book. It's Richard Francis Xavier Manning, known as Brennan Manning. He died last year about this time. He served as a United States Marine, served in the Korean War. And he submitted himself to a priestly training that was very rigid, abstaining from a lot of things. He also submitted himself to a prison for about six months just so that he could experience it in a foreign country. <clears throat> And so he ultimately became a preacher in small churches, essentially. But he influenced people in a large way. One of those people he influenced was named Rich Mullins. Do you, have you heard of Rich Mullins? He wrote a song called Awesome God. There's several songs that he wrote. Every song I think that I've ever heard, which I think I've heard all of his, I love those songs. He is still today considered one of the best lyrics writer, hymn writer. Uh, in fact, if you know what a hymn book is, Awesome God appeared in hymn books. But Rich Mullins was a celebrity. Rich Mullins was the guy that got Amy Grant popular. He wrote a song, and she sang, Sing Your Praise to the Lord. That was a song he wrote, and that just made her millions, made him millions. <clears throat> he was his own artist. He was an amazing musician. Some people say he's one of the most brilliant mus musicians. He could pick up any instrument and play it, and he didn't play it like normal people. He made instruments just sing. He's amazing. But Rich Mullins visited my college campus while I was there. As the RA of the dorm, I would hear the scuffle. I would leave my dorm room open. People kind of knew, don't don't bother me when I'm studying, and so unless it's a crisis, you know. So I leave my door open. I'd be studying, and then I would hear the 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 clamor in the hallway. Rich Mullins is coming. Rich Mullins. And it was a big deal when it first started, but then after a while, it wasn't as big. But still, he was treated like a celebrity. 
And so Rich Mullins would go up and down the hall, but he got to this point where frequently he would stand in the doorway in my dorm room while I'm by myself studying, and he would put his back against the door jam and lean up against it and cross his arms and stare at me. And you see, I knew things about Rich Mullins. Being the RA, I'd been told that he was not allowed to perform on our campus. He'd got in trouble. I learned that he'd been kicked off of another college campus. He was kicked out as a student. I learned that he'd been kicked out of other venues. He'd, he, he got in trouble. He did that. He had a troubled life as a kid. He was a rebel then, and he was a rebel when he got older. And so I judged him because I knew the things he had done that he shouldn't have done as a Christian, as a leader. And so as he stood in my doorway, he never talked to me, and I never talked to him. I would just look at him, and I'd go back to studying. And I couldn't stand the fact that he was standing in my doorway because I thought, you hypocrite. You're a leader in the things you do and the things you've done. I judged him harshly. He never said anything to me. I never said anything to him. I don't even know why he stood in my doorway. After learning a lot about Rich Mullins, and after he died, he died in in a tragic accident years ago, he didn't have a seatbelt on. He's a rebel. And uh, he was in a Jeep, and, <clears throat> and, and he, he f- flew out of the Jeep, and a, uh, an 18-wheeler drove over his body, and he did not survive. Since that time, people have marveled about how brilliant of an artist he was. And, and, I, and I, w- I went to CIY with him. I would you know, have a, a, an opportunity to speak on the stage, and he would be part of that group, and he would be there, and I didn't like him, so I didn't communicate with him. I had opportunities to rub elbows with a celebrity, somebody that will always be remembered as a great leader. <clears throat> but I judged him. And they made a movie about him. They just recently put it out on DVD. There's a documentary out there. It's really sad because he had a sad life. But <clears throat> Rich Mullins, I learned more bad things about him after he died and judged him more. But as time went on, I'm careful with the music I listened to. I paid attention to the lyrics. And I finally came to the conclusion that you cannot write words like those words without being close to Jesus. You cannot do it. And I came to the realization that I had judged him. I had no grace for him. I judged him. And when they were soliciting for stories about Rich Mullins to make this movie, years ago they started soliciting, asking, you know, did you know him? Did you meet him? Were you around him? My story was sad. It didn't appear in any documentary or anything because my story was I didn't like him. I judged him. I don't want to put that out there in a book or a movie or anything. But I felt so small because here I wanted God's grace, but I wasn't giving it. I was judgmental. I was arrogant. Well, this guy by the name of Brennan Manning is how, what he went by. Rich Mullins was drawn to him, so drawn to him that he actually named his band the Ragamuffin Band, which is there's a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. It's the most popular book that uh, Brennan Manning wrote. <clears throat> the thing that, marveled, that, that Rich Mullins marveled about, and by the way, the guy that told me about Brennan Manning, the, the Ragamuffin Band, the guy that told me about him... Um, was a very good friend of mine. He was a, a, a physician, a very godly man who dedicated his life. He would take off a month or two at a time, and he would go to foreign countries and give his services to those who needed it, who couldn't afford it. And this man told me that I need to read this book. I need to read Brennan Manning. In the book, Ragamuffin Band, it's about essentially that Jesus picked the most unqualified people to serve him. <laughs> 
You know? And that those are the people. It's, it's not about how good we are. It's about how big His grace is. And Brendan Manning's whole life was about that. Most people don't know this, but Brendan Manning, one of the things that drew Rich Mullins to him was that he struggled with alcoholism as a preacher. And all of his books were all about the grace of God that was big enough to save even him. There were other people that also marveled by him as well, uh, marveled about him, other celebrities. He became a very in-demand speaker toward the end of his life. 2 Corinthians 8-9 says this very beautifully in the, in the message. You are familiar with the generosity of our Master Jesus Christ. Rich as he was, he gave it all away for us. In one stroke, he became poor, and we became rich. I'm going to ask you a question. If you weren't in first service, have you ever heard of this song, Faith's Review and Expectation? Anybody? That's what I thought. It was written by John Newton in 1872. It was probably first performed at a Bible study, January 1st in 1873. I, I, I need to tell you about John Henry Newton. Has anybody heard about John Henry Newton? Let me tell you a little bit about him. His mother, well, at first his father was Catholic, but he was also um, sensitive and even a little bit sympathetic to the Protestant movement, which is unusual. And his mother was not part of either. She was more, uh, I guess, more a Protestant, but she was in, not even in the Anglican church. She was in an independent Christian church, and she just knew and wanted her son to become a preacher. Just this guy. Well, <clears throat> that kind of fell through the cracks because she died of tuberculosis when he was six years old. He was sent to boarding school, and he was very... Before he was sent to boarding school, he had a stepmother who was very disconnected from him emotionally and mistreated him. Ultimately, he was sent to boarding school, where he was also mistreated. By the time he was 11, his father thought it best to bring him on the ship with him. What does his father do? His father ran slave ships, where they would go down and pick up slaves and sell them. That's what they did. And... And so he brought his son in on this, and at 11 years old, he became a rebel, constantly in trouble, constantly fighting for his life. He kept doing stupid things, causing himself problems, and barely clung to life several times. That was his childhood, almost dying over and over again. And while he was almost dying, one of those times, he renounced his faith, didn't believe in God, Jesus, the Bible, wanted nothing to do with it. There was no hope in it whatsoever. And because of his rebellion, even on his father's ships, ultimately he was pushed into the Royal Navy. That rebel didn't last there. He deserted. Multiple times on these various ships that he was on, he was arrested. He was put in prison on the ships. Ultimately, in fact, they were so, it was so bad that they would arrest him on the ships. One time they almost starved him to death because he became so profane. He... he Ultimately, his father rescued him. He was in prison on an island. He was chained with slaves and had to work the slave's life. Then he got a letter from, he sent a letter to his dad, and his dad came and rescued him, got him out of it, put him on another ship. And on this other ship, the captain said he, now keep in mind, these are sailors. And he said he'd never heard a human speak so foul in his life. He said this guy created ways to, uh, to be obscene that nobody had ever heard of. 
He was so profane. He actually led the crew in songs against the captain that were horribly filled with profanities that he made up. He was a bad guy. Every sin you can think of, he was involved in it, and he loved wallowing in it. Everybody knew how bad he was. He was just a bad, bad, bad man. One day, while he was on the ship, his, um, everyone realized that the storm was very bad. The storm was so bad that right where he was standing, right where John was standing, he just moved over a little bit, and some waves came and took a guy right off the ship. It scared him to death. And so what he decided to tell the captain, he goes, hey, uh, we're going to tie ourselves to the ship here, and uh, if this doesn't work, Lord, God have mercy on us. So they tied themselves to the ship, thinking that, it's going, that none of them are going to survive. And if the ship goes down, they're going down with it, except for the grace of God. They survived. He uh, ultimately uh, found himself, it, it, he, he found himself in love with a woman. <laughs> and um, while he was in love with this woman from his childhood, he, he also began to reflect. He was reading a Christian book. He, was, he had been reflecting on it just before this big uh, incident with his ship, and that's why he was thinking about the grace of God. And he, he didn't have an instant conversion, but he was reflecting as, as he was trying to man the, to the stern and try to rescue them as he was tied to the ship. He, he began to think about his proposal about the grace of God. And he realized how lost he was and how bad a person he was and how opposed to God he was and how he'd committed every sin that there was. And he was just a horrible, horrible person. He um, thought about this and he ultimately thought he was going to make right all these wrongs. And he still had to be on these ships where the slaves were and he began to think this was wrong. He ultimately became an abolitionist, totally opposed to slavery. It was just wrong. He committed to God. While he was there... Oh, while he was in love with this girl, he he wrote to the parents and said, I I want to court your daughter. And, of course, their initial response is, we know all about you. (laughs) But they also saw him changing. And because of his commitment to her, that helped him. And he was working on land because he passed out on a ship. It was bothering him so much. He, he, He didn't want to do that anymore. He worked on land doing some clerical stuff and shipping and receiving. And while he was there, he began to train himself in theology and Greek and in Latin. And he began to understand the purpose, his purpose, and he understood this proposal about mercy, how dependent he would be on God's grace. And so, he ultimately became that preacher his mother wanted him to be, but he was rejected by the church. Who wants a preacher that's committed every sin you can imagine, known as being the most profane among sailors? Well, there was a church that accepted him. He was unlike all the other preachers. (laughs) All the other preachers preached how everybody else needs to change, and he preached about how he he needed to change. He preached about his horrible, sinful life and how he depended on the grace of God, and people could relate to him. He wasn't polished, but he was under the grace of God. And it was in this building here that you see, in a town of 2,500 people, where he was preaching... And by the way, his friend, he made a friend there. It's a crazy thought here. This friend struggled with serious bouts of suicidal 
thoughts and all kinds of forms of mental illness. This man had serious mental illness issues, but he was drawn to the grace of God because the grace of God is big enough. And so it's in this building that he wrote this song, the song I asked you if you ever heard of. Well, this, the name of the song changed over the years. Here's the words. Maybe, you've, maybe you do know the song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You might want to think about these words as you're thinking about this man that nobody probably in regular churches today would welcome to even sit amongst us, much less be our preacher. <laughs> Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Tis grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Now, I, wanna, I don't want to take a lot of time here, because this line here, when we sing this song, Amazing Grace, I don't sing this line. And the reason why I don't is because theologically it's not correct. The saving grace of Jesus does not appear the hour you first believe. Demons believe. Read James. There's more to it than that. You have to commit to the lordship of Jesus Christ and live for him. You have to repent, confess, be baptized. It doesn't just appear the hour I first believe. In fact, it didn't happen that way for him either. But it, you know, it's a song. You can't put everything in there. So, just so you know. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Yes, he did. <laughs> His grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will shield my he will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Two more lines. Yes, when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine. But God who called me here below will be forever mine. You, you did know that song. Yeah. Just didn't realize the old name of it. Or how bad the guy was who wrote it. He understood the grace of God. No wonder we like that song so much. We can relate. I don't know if you listen to Christian radio much, but some of the modern, some of the most popular modern groups out there and individuals, let me, let me just name some of them quickly for you. Just, I'm just going to name th three of them and then, and then a fourth. Uh, there's Toby Mac. Have you heard of him? Okay. There's Newsboys. Have you heard of them? Uh, Audio Adrenaline. Have you heard of them? Audio Adrenaline was one of those bands that I got to, that I did get to pray with and interact with when they were starting out with CIY as well. But I got to tell you, um, to Toby Mac was the main brains behind a group called DC Talk. That's the fourth band. And, um, and then they had Michael Tate and Kevin Max. Uh, those were the main singers in there. Toby Mac did most of the uh, hip-hop stuff. But those other two were the main singers. And I don't know if you know this, but Michael Tate is the lead singer for Newsboys today. And, and then Kevin Max is the lead singer for Audio Adrenaline. And so the, the band DC Talk makes up some of those popular bands today. DC Talk, and one of their songs called What If I Stumbled, and we're not going to go to the video, but because of time, you should watch their videos. They have really, really good songs. Um, but DC Talk wrote a song called What If I Stumble? And at the beginning of the song, they did that quote about hypocrisy of Christians, you know, the quote from uh, Brennan. And um, the song What If I Stumble is a powerful song. It's a song asking the question, as a Christian, what if I mess up? 
and make the rest of us look bad. Let me clue you in. You do mess up. We all mess up. There's a difference. And if you don't understand this, I should clarify. The difference is Christians, when they mess up, they try to, when they know they've erred, they try to make it right. They try to correct the wrongs as best they can. And they try to please God. They know they're going to mess up, but they don't want to. They strive not to. The non-Christian, on the other hand, and sometimes the hypocrites who call themselves Christians, just do whatever they want. They don't care about pleasing God. Asking the question, what if I stumble? That's a humble question to ask. Maybe you're familiar with a passage in the Bible in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, we go there a lot for one particular reason. In Matthew 18, this is the confrontation passage. This is where Jesus tells us, if someone sins against you, what you're supposed to do is go to that person first. You know the story? You know how it goes? You go to that person. If they sin against you, if your brother sins against you, you go to them first and you confront it. You address it. There's a lot of reasons for that. It's a great thing because you might be wrong. Have you ever thought about that? You think someone sinned against you and you might, it might turn out what you heard wasn't true. Does that ever happen? Somebody say something that's not true and sounds true? Yeah. So you go to them one-on-one. And then if, the, and then if you, take, you go there and they don't repent, it turns out to be true, they don't repent, then you got to take somebody with you. So that on the basis of two or more witnesses, it can be established that you did confront them. You also may learn, if you take someone with you, you may learn you are wrong. You may be confronting someone that you think sinned against you, and actually what they did was something right. And your witness might be saying, hold on, hold on, back off. Whatever the case, resolution is the whole point. You're trying to resolve the issue. You're not trying to hurt anybody. And then if they don't repent, then it's got to be exposed. Now, it's an interesting thing that happens. You know, we don't do this. Christians, we, we don't follow these directions very well. We all know the directions. If somebody sins against you, you go to them, just between the two of you. You know what we usually do? Someone, we think someone wronged us. We, we go to somebody else. Hey, you know what they did? We, we go and we say things. Now, the intention may not be to destroy other people, or hurt other people, but that's the effect. We go to somebody else. And, and that is what hypocrisy looks like. We know what Jesus said to do. We call him Lord, but we don't submit to do what he says to do. We got our own way. We got our excuses. But it's interesting because after Jesus said this, this is hilarious. After he says this about if somebody sins against you, you confront them. And this here's how you do it. After this, then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. As many as seven times? Well, that's a lot, see, in his mind. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Some translations say it differently with even more, but this is the, the more conservative translation, 77 times. Whoa! And you got to understand, this slaps Peter in the face like, oh, really? Because he's saying, like, you expect me to ask somebody, you expect me to forgive somebody seven times, up to seven times? Is that how much I have to do this? And, you know, I go confront them, and they sin against me, and they say, I'm sorry. Then they do it again. Am I supposed to go do this seven times? Because that seems like a lot. Jesus said, Seventy-seven. Some of your translations, 70 times seven. Oh, that seems like so much. 
whoa, really? I mean, somebody could be mean to us that many times that we got to go back to them and say, I'm sorry, or they, we got to allow them to say, I'm sorry, and forgive them? Really? Seems like a lot. Well, let's just see if it does. So when you go to Jesus, how many, where do you want the cutoff to be for Jesus? Seven? How about 77? 77 times, after the 77th time you say, I'm sorry to Jesus, is that okay for him to cut you off then? You're done being forgiven. Oh, wait a minute. You like that bigger number, don't you? 70 times 7. That's it. That's it. That's the one. Really? Do you want the cutoff? Do you want his grace to be cut off at a particular number? Or do you want it to be amazing grace that's just big enough? Oh, see, it changes everything, doesn't it? When you put it on the other foot, you know, you say, Jesus is going to forgive me how many times? I'll take as much as I can get. (sighs) How much will you give? See, if we're going to be like Jesus, and we're going to be gracious like him, can we forgive like that? I mean, if we want his grace, aren't we supposed to be gracious with others? We, we read that passage earlier. We want his blessings, you know, pressed down and spilled over and overflowing. Wait a minute, that's not talking about blessings. That's talking about grace. It's talking about how much forgiveness you want. We want it just all over the place. Yeah, we do. So how, remember, it's with the measure you use is the measure you're given. <laughs> you start talking about where you want Jesus to cut off his grace... You want to back up and say, 70 times 7 is not enough. I'll forgive more. Then you want to start getting into why Jesus said the numbers he said. You do realize this is figurative language here. The number 7 is this idea of completion. However much it takes to understand the grace of God, forgive people. Are you saying with me? There's more. (laughs) Jesus continues because he knows Peter is like 70. Seven times, or 70 times seven. That's a lot. He, Jesus goes on, he says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now you can look this up. Just to be sure, you should look it up. To be clear, imagine if you are setting up your retirement How much do you need to have sitting there for you and your family to be okay when you retire? So there's investments and you've got annuities or however you're planning on your retirement. How much money needs to be sitting there? That's a lot. That's a lot. This is more than that. This is more. Look it up. And since he could not pay, the master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. He's begging him. He has nothing to negotiate with. So he just pleads with him, please be patient. Give me mercy. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Just get up. Forget about it. Just, just pretend like you don't owe me anything. It's forgiven just take care of your family. Go on. Mercy. Grace. Just You owe me, but just forget about it. Wow. It's nice. It's amazing, actually. Verse 28, But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Look it up. A hundred denarii. Nowhere near a retirement nest egg. 
Mm-mm. You go through that in no time. In fact, you go through that in about three months, comparatively, if you're comparing it to your nest egg. <laughs> and seizing him, he began to choke him. Whoa, there's a difference in behavior here, isn't there? Saying, pay me what you owe. <laughs> so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him the same. He's on his knees. He has nothing to negotiate with. So he says, have patience with me, and I will pay. I'm only doing that because it's being recorded, and it sounds funny when all of a sudden the preacher stops talking. <clears throat> so he's, he's seeking mercy, but verse 30, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your hearts. You want grace? Show grace. Grace is available to all of us if we are gracious with others. That's the way it works. Now, a mentor. A man who had more impact on me than he'll probably ever really know. I tell him, but he's a mentor. He calls me sometimes. He wrestles with demons of old. Struggles with things in his past. And so he called me not too long ago and he had some scriptures that were bothering him. This is one of them. Paul, the, Paul, the author of many of our New Testament books. He's, understand these Romans get this letter from Paul, you know, the whole church. Okay, we got a letter from Paul. Everybody listen up. God speaking through the apostle Paul. We got some instructions. And look at what Paul puts in here, inspired by God. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. This is Paul, the apostle, this great speaker, the writer of much of our New Testament, says, I just keep messing everything up. Verse 24, a little bit further down, he says, wretched man that I am. Does this remind you of that Amazing Grace song, <laughs> Saved a Wretch Like Me? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And this mentor of mine struggles with this. I can relate to Paul in this, he says. Then he said, you remember that other passage that says this? You remember this other passage? This is the one. This one, he, he, he said something after this, but I want to give it to you in the voice translation. It's a good translation. 
This is 1 Timothy 1.15. Here's a statement worthy of trust. Listen up. Jesus the anointed, the liberating king, came into the world to save sinners. That's grace. And he says, and I am the worst of them all. If you have a King James Bible, it says, I am the chief of all sinners. Paul said that. And my mentor says about this passage, I don't mean to be disrespectful of Scripture or Paul or God. I'm talking about I'm the chief of all sinners. He says, I beg to differ. You ever read this passage and think that way? Paul is the chief of all sinners? No, no, that's me. See, I realize that there are people who come into a church building and, and, and week after week, I know there's people who come in here and they say, you know, in their own minds, they think, you know, I'm, I, I've done so many things I shouldn't have done. I'm not, not a good person. And there's people, that, you know, they, they haunt themselves. And it's, sometimes it's good for us to let it haunt us because it keeps us from repeating those stupid mistakes. But some of us, we beat ourselves up a lot and hurt ourselves in the process. Maybe we beat ourselves up too much sometimes. Those are humble people who think like that. People that say, I'm the worst of all sinners. I beg to differ with Paul. That would be me. That's a humble person. And then there's other people who worship with us. Maybe right here in this room. Who focus on other people's sins. Judging everybody else. Not a humble person, a proud person. Not understanding that they are under the grace of God, they mess up too. They're too focused on everybody else's problems. And those people aren't hurting themselves only, like the others who are humble. They're hurting just about everybody they talk to. Judgmental, arrogant people. Who do we think we are? To think that we are somehow worthy of the grace of God. None of us are. <laughs> In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, look at this. Paul said this too. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. That's why that preacher was so good at reaching lost people. Because he wasn't phony. He could relate. He wasn't pretending that he did everything right. <clears throat> so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see how that works? It's when we think we're all that, that we are nothing. And when we realize we are nothing, his grace is big enough. Then we're strong enough to reach people. Then we can overcome. Have you heard the book of wisdom, James, in the New Testament? Listen to what this says. But he gives more grace, James 4, 6. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's why I have this word grace up here. It's really big. Because grace is really big. 
it's too big for us to really discuss all of it in a Sunday morning service or in a Bible study in one sitting. It's, it's big. It's, it's this whole book. It's the whole gospel message. It's the whole reason for the cross. It's our only access to the salvation of God is through grace. It's by grace through our faith. And grace is big enough. And you might say, see, because last week I talked about Father's Day. um, In the the Father's Day message, you might want to get a copy if you weren't here. But we talked about this. Talked about the reprobate. (laughs) And given the number of people at the door and their responses... There's a lot of us humble people who feel like we are the reprobates. You know that God's grace is big enough for the reprobates? Do you you know that God's grace is big enough for those people who won't even come into this building? Maybe you've heard this. People won't come into church. You don't want me to come to your church. (laughs) People would keel over dead if they saw me walk in your church. We got this idea that somehow we're supposed to be perfect people before we ever get here. And then when we get here, we all got to pretend like we're perfect, you know? But we're not. Jeff, you, you, you say, like last week I discussed, you might say, Jeff, um, <clears throat> well, I told you, you know, I got some bad stuff in my past. Yes. Um, I still struggle with things. Yeah, don't we all? Well, you don't want to know. I mean, you don't understand. I don't need to know. I do know this. His grace is big enough for whatever we've got going on. Get to know him. He wants us to modify our behaviors and try to do better to please him. But none of us are good enough. His grace is big enough. If you need to make a decision, this is your opportunity. At the end of the preacher's message, we have a song of decision. And what this is for is for you to sing the song like you mean it. Maybe you need to have prayer. Maybe you need to pray to God right where you are. Maybe you're one of these that just hasn't, maybe you haven't handed things over like you need to. Maybe you're one who is a little judgmental like I've been that way so many times where I judge other people when I want the grace of God. Maybe you're one of these. Maybe you're struggling with something you need to make right with God. The song of decision is the time we do those things. And if you need the help of the church, come forward. I'll be waiting up front. We've got others that are here. If you want to grab somebody you trust, bring them with you. Or just talk to God right where you are. We're going to sing the song of decision, and we're not going to play church. We're going to try to make things right with God. His grace is big enough. Join me in song.